Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. Things aren't always as they seem, and oftentimes we undervalue or misinterpret or underestimate people. And it happens all the time. I know I'm guilty of it, and I know that as a teenager, I was extremely guilty of it, and when I played sports, I was even more guilty of it. There was a kid that I played high school basketball with that the first time I saw him, I'm like, oh my gosh, but this kid can't ball. He's short, he he doesn't have a, his, his shooting form was awful, he cocked his elbow in too far, I mean, it was just like, oh my gosh. But the dude was about 5'7", and I found out the hard way he could dunk. And if there had been cell phones back in the day, I might have made a video, there might have been a video of me getting posterized by a 5'7 kid. I totally underestimated the fact that this kid could elevate over me. I did, over me, and dunk the ball. It was unbelievable. I've never seen a kid with that much hops, with that that much vertical ability. It was incredible. I think that we also underestimate Jesus. We underestimate who he is and what he does and what he wants to do, and we underestimate ourselves in the hands of Jesus. But we're not the only ones who do that. In fact, his whole story is full of people who underestimate him, who misunderstand him, who look at him sideways like, what are you thinking? Who are you? Why are you saying this? Today we're going to look at this final scene besides next week where we look at the resurrection scene. But we've looked at Jesus washing his feet, the feet of his disciples. We see last week Jesus in the upper room serving the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper. And now we're going to look at the crucifixion. We're jumping through all of the trial and the arrest, and we're going straight to the crucifixion. Jesus was found guilty even though he wasn't guilty. And the only reason why he was guilty was because Pilate didn't have the guts to put an end to it. He was too scared of what would happen if he didn't acquiesce to the crowd. And so in Matthew 27, we're going to pick up and we're going to look at verses 27 through 50. We're not covering every verse in that span, but we're going to jump around. But to get there, you have to know the end of verse 26. (coughs) They released Barabbas because the crowd had asked for him. And having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion. The praetorium was where we think that he gathered them, and it would have been a place where the outside could not see in. There are differences of opinions on where this is. If you go with us to the Holy Land, we will actually go to the place where and touch the very bricks or stonework where we believe Jesus was scourged. 
It's a powerful moment. And it's in this enclosed area, and there's, we are told, a whole battalion. Now, a battalion in the Roman military, particularly in Palestine, would have been made up of conscripted people, not necessarily Roman citizens, not the actual Roman soldiers, but people who had been conscripted into the Roman army. So they were non-Jewish people from the Palestinian area who had been trained to be Roman soldiers. So they had no love loss for the Jewish people because at one point they probably had been embattled with the Jewish people. And so 600 of them in this fortress in what would have been almost like a a court in a courtyard and the soldiers gathered Jesus there and they stripped him, verse 28. And they put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hell, King of Jews. And they spit on him and took a reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. This whole scene, these five verses here, paint a picture of an enthronement. These are all parts of what they would have done to enthrone a king, but it's all done in jest and mockery. It's all done with cheap substitutes. Let's go back and look at it. So the first thing is they stripped him of his clothes, and honestly, when you were crucified, you were crucified nude. They would have stripped all your clothes away. It was just another way to bring shame on you. And so they stripped Jesus of all his clothes and they put a scarlet robe on him. Now scarlet here is probably the red robe that the Roman soldiers had. It was a cheap robe and it was cheaply dyed with a cheap red dye. It was easy to get. It was not the best of clothes. It was just a, an awful substitute. It wasn't purple. It was red. I'll let you figure out why that might be. They put a scarlet robe on him. By the way, uh, for those of you who are uh, into uh, literature, this is one place where we get scarlet being symbolic of what it is. And I'm looking at a, a literary expert in here. They put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. Now, we don't know exactly what bush it was that they made the crown of thorns from, but there are a lot of thorny bushes that would have been available to them. And they took one and they wrapped it and they put it on his head. Now, this wasn't as a means of torture as as, as much as it was a means of mockery. It was just another way to say, you are ridiculous. But they crown him. They robe him and they crown him. And then they took a reed, a reed that was either a measuring reed or it would have been a reed that would have just been kind of sitting over the side that they could have used to scrape away poop on the sidewalk or whatever, who knows. But it was a reed, maybe something not unlike a piece of bamboo. I put it in his hand. It's not a scepter. 
That's not what a king would own or hold. It was nothing that was mighty. It was nothing that, that showed power or that showed military might or that showed wealth. It was, it was just a throwaway stick. And they handed it to him. And then they kneeled before him and they said, Hell, king of the Jews. As much as this is a mockery about who Jesus claimed to be, it's also his enthronement. He was becoming a king. And in every way we look at this, we think about it as being something that's negative. But for Jesus, he went through this embarrassment and this mockery because he was indeed becoming a king, but a different kind of king. A king unlike what the Romans knew, and a king unlike most of the Jews had ever dreamed of. A king that was different in every single way, and so he had to be enthroned this way. And they mock him, and they bow down and kneel before him and say, Hell, king of Jews, how funny ironic or whatever it is you want to say that at the end of times every knee shall bow and every tongue confess not that he is the king of the jews but that he is the lord of the universe they made fun of him saying he was the king of the jews because being the king of the jews wasn't really that big of a deal for romans even that was a mockery so this was a mockery upon a mockery here but not for Jesus. He understood that what he was going through was necessary, that he was being enthroned, that in fact, this was his way of becoming king. And then they took him out, and on the way they found a man to carry his cross, and the cross was carried before him, not unlike an armor bearer would carry the armor for a king, someone carried his cross, because the cross was his weapon, right? And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they got to Galgotha, the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And then they crucified him, and they divided up his garment. Verse 37, over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And those who passed by derided him, verse 39, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, which was based on something that he said earlier in the week, save yourself. If you are indeed the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and, he, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And in this scene, this next scene, we see his faux armor bearer carrying his cross, which would be his weapon. We see his enthronement as he is exalted and placed on a cross, not on a throne. The cross, rough-hewn wood that was just hammered into, there was nothing pretty or special. In fact, it was probably just a, a really rough piece of wood. 
not the hand-carved, ornamented throne that a king would sit on, not one interlaced with gold and jewels. Instead, his was rough wood. But the cross became his throne. Just as a king was seated high on a throne, Jesus was extended high on the cross. And as people walked by, they mocked him and made fun of him and they hurled insults at him. This was their way of praising the king. Air quotes. In a normal setting, there would have been praises, there would have been shouts to the king that had been enthroned, there would have been all sorts of hymns sung, and there would have been shouts of honor and glory. And instead, the shouts that Jesus received were shouts that derided him and made fun of him, that lessened who he was. In every way, in every part of this scene, Jesus is enthroned as the king but almost exactly opposite of what would normally happen for a king. Now in the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's from noon to three. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, or which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want to stop here because this is a very important thing that we've talked about before that often gets missed with this particular verse. Does anybody remember what this actually is? What is Jesus quoting? Psalm 22. And if you read Psalm 22, and you read it in its entirety, which I implore you to do at some point today, Psalm 22 actually has four elements for what's just happened to Jesus built into the psalm. Did you know that? It talks about people making fun of him. It talks about him crying out. It talks about him being beaten. So when Jesus quotes the first stanza of Psalm 22, what he's saying is this psalm is now being fulfilled in your presence. This psalm is now being fulfilled. Everything that David wrote about in his psalm about uh, asking God to help him in the middle of his, of, of his disastrous situation, this is my psalm, but it's not just me crying out for God to help me or to say, God, why are you forsaking me? But to say, God, you are forsaking me because of your glory and for your purpose. This was a way of him telling himself and proclaiming to the audience who would have heard it and known that it was the beginning of Psalm 22. And if they knew that it was Psalm 22, they would have known all of Psalm 22. And if they knew all of Psalm 22, this would have been a slap in their face. It would have been a wake-up call. It would have been Jesus saying, look at what you're doing. Do you not see who I am? Do you not see that I am your king and that God is doing something here? And yes, he felt distance from the Father at this point. This is the place where he calls him my God and not my Father. One of the only places. But it's because 
this is what his kingship and his kingdom look like. This whole scene is about Jesus being enthroned. And him being enthroned according to Psalm 22, not according to what the world said a king should be. Jesus was becoming king by dying. So the question then that comes up is, well, what kind of king dies and what kind of kingdom is his? And quite frankly, it's a kingdom of love, of sacrifice, and of forgiveness. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? Isn't that why he suffered? And so as he's being enthroned, he's in being, th- being enthroned as the king who loves, the king who sacrifices, the king who forgives. His kingdom is different. It's not about power and prestige. It's not about wealth, and it's not about making noise on Fox News or CNN or CNBC or whatever it is you go to, Twitter, for your news. It wasn't about making a ripple and making a stand. It was about self-sacrifice because he knew it was the only way that his good news, God comes to love and forgive, and that's his kingdom. And if you join us in this process of this week of doing the, the uh, version devotional uh, from the Bible Project, the video you watch today talks about this very thing. And it ties it back to an Old Testament prophecy about those who come with good news and they bring them on their feet. As someone comes running into Jerusalem after it has been destructed, completely destroyed. And this bearer of good news comes running with a message. And his message is the king is coming. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And the good news was that there's a king coming and that this king would change everything. Because his kingdom isn't about glory on this earth. His kingdom isn't about, again, power and prestige. His kingdom is about you. It's about you. Every single one of you. His kingdom is about you. He wants you to know that he loves you that he forgives you, and that he has sacrificed himself for you because you couldn't do it yourself. His kingdom is about new life, which we're going to learn about next week. His kingdom is different. It's an upside-down kingdom. And therefore, his enthronement was an upside-down enthronement. That's the power of the scene. Verse 49. Jesus cries out, and they want to wait to see what happens. But then in verse 50, we hear this final phrase, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice 
and yielded up his spirit. We are told in another gospel that he says, it is finished and into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. My enthronement is done. Now what's very interesting about this is Jesus has been on the cross for hours. Usually by this time, you can barely breathe, much less yell out in a loud voice. Which means that he was probably still far from physical death at the hands of the Romans. The reason why that's important is I think that Matthew here wants his readers to understand that this was a willful act of self-surrender. The Romans didn't take it from him. He gave it. And he gave it for you. That's what the upside down enthronement and the upside kingdom, upside down kingdom is all about. Jesus. He is king. And he is enthroned. He's like that five, seven little kid who was faster than anybody else on the court. And could rise up and posterize me. I underestimated him. And for years I underestimated Jesus. But not anymore. And as this scene closed out. It's on the mouth of the Roman soldiers. Who had underestimated him who had mocked him, who had given him a false robe, a false crown, a false scepter, a false enthronement. It was on their lips that they said, surely this is the Son of God. They underestimated him no more. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.